Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Silent Giants is brought to you by Ali. Ali, powered by Verizon locations, are developed by Verizon, the world's leading technology company. In collaboration with Ali, a membership-only community workspace for creators. Each location is a community curated powered by the emerging technologies and thought leadership of Verizon. With Ally, Verizon is bridging the gap between startup and corporation by helping the community workspace build next-level ecosystems for entrepreneurs. Now, on to my episode with DJ Sense. I mean, you shouldn't have to rely on anybody to get an idea down. You know, you, you never know when inspiration is going to hit you. So I always preach, at the very least, have a setup where you can record your idea down. And then if you need somebody to clean it up and make it better or re-record it later, at least we have it captured. 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 Yeah, yeah, check it out. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. Uh, yeah. Everybody tuning in, you invited, you invited. No matter what mood you in, get excited, get excited. Everybody love the music. Let me tell you how they do it. Whether writer or an agent, let me tell you how they made it. You are now talking to a silent giant. Wanna walk in their shoes, silent giants. Wanna study they move, silent giants. Wanna know what they do, silent giants. Silent giants, y'all. <laughs> Welcome to the Silent Giants Podcast. A podcast highlighting the superstars behind your favorite superstars and in creative industries. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. To keep up with the latest on the show, be sure to follow us on Instagram at, at Silent Giants Podcast. To keep up with my life, music, and more, be sure to follow me as well at, at Corey Cambridge. This week's Silent Giant is DJ and producer, Sense. Sense is a DJ and producer for one of my favorite Brooklyn MCs, Mr. Motherfucking Esquire. In this interview, he stopped by to talk about his career discuss valuable lessons he learned along the way, and a whole lot more. So, without further ado, let me introduce you to the producer, the DJ, my friend, the silent giant, Sense. My man Sense, what's up, player? Man, good to see you, brother. It's been way too long. Dude, it has been. Oh, so hold on, let's, let's take it back here. We're talking 2011. Yeah. Damn, we're getting old. Dude, were you, <laughs> I call it wise. There you go. <laughs> I'm stealing that. I like that. A old lot is like Walmart in Oklahoma. <laughs> like that's old. We're jo- Jordan ass jeans. Word. <laughs> yeah, we're just experienced. Word. Like we still got on fresh kicks. That's facts. You know what I'm saying? We still out here. That's facts. So because this is 2011, were you at the uh, Esquire as a Hazai video shoot? Yep. Okay, I'm trying to think of the first time. Were you there when his show at Webster? Yep. With Nigel. Yep. Yes. Okay. So I feel like that might have been that was the very first time that yeah. I met uh, met X. I think that was the first time we met. Wow. That was a crazy day. Yeah. That Webster show. Webster. I miss Webster. Dude, that was a crazy, crazy show. That was an amazing show. I, no, the thing is, what I remember the most was there was more people on the stage <laughs> than in the crowd, and I remember being like, "Yo," and I'm, I'm right from Virginia. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. So I'm sitting there like, "Yo, like, what the fuck is going on?" And everyone's hype as fuck on stage. 40s everywhere on stage. Yep. 
It's funny you remember those like 40 people on stage days because I feel like that was it was like the early portion of X's career. Yeah. And it was one of the first things we kind of had to adapt. It was like the first big lesson in live performance and taking your show to the stage because it doesn't fly. You know, it's but I thought it added to the effect. Totally does. It's just the engineers and the club and everyone that has to deal with the ramifications of that. Not happy. It becomes a problem. Not happy. You know, so if that's, I do think you're right. It kind of goes back to the old like Wu-Tang days where you had 40, 50 people in any setting, but you have to do it in the right environment. Right. Because I mean, that definitely added to the aesthetic of New York. Hell yeah. Like that's When like, you look at Manolo Rose now, for example, they do the same thing with the fame school stuff. There's just 20, 30 people on stage. The party's on stage. Right. And that is a very, like, East Coast, New York thing. We roll with our crew, you know. For sure. For sure. With 40s. With 40s. <laughs> at the very least. <laughs> so, so, since, where are, you, where are you from? Actually, I don't know this. Where are you from? I'm originally from Brooklyn. Um, okay. I bounced around in most boroughs in New York, but I was born in East New York, Linden Plaza. I spent a lot of time in Bed-Stuy. Okay. Spent some years in the Bronx for high school. I went to science, so we moved up there. Um, but, yeah, I'm a Brooklyn kid for the most part. And so, like, how did you, like, get involved in music for, like, the first time? Um, I fell in love with it in church. So my grandma would always, you know, force me to go to church when I didn't want to as a kid. We had a banging choir. And I remember seeing the organist kind of like sway the mood of the crowd based on what he was playing. Yeah. And I was like, I want to do that. I don't know how, but I want to do that. But, you know, I also had parents that were DJs. My mom was a disco funk DJ. My stepdad was on like the early hip hop side of things. So we always had turntables in the house. Um, eventually I got a nerdy little computer set up at about 14, 15. And the first thing I did was learn how to use it to make beats. Wow. So, so you instantly took me to like back in the day when I was going to church and the, the organist. Yeah. Because that's when you knew when the church was about to get hyped. Yep. When it hit the da 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 Yep. Those sustained chords. Oh. Start to get the hairs oh, up, standing yeah. up. Man. And the Lord done said. Lord. Uh-huh. It's always a turn down. It's the first DJ. And it's turn down, turn down. I really, I really equate that to DJ. Yo, like, absolutely. It's reading the crowd, accelerating the crowd, tension, release. Like, yes. That was the first time I saw a story being told with the music, and I wanted to do that too. You know what's crazy is that I look at uh, uh, like black culture. Yeah. I was having a conversation. Do you know Toronto Day Omari? I don't. Uh, very talented LA rappers and producers. Like, right they on. were part of the whole scene with. Uh, Kendrick and Anderson Park and right on like early on they had a, a collective. I'm sure, I know their work really, yeah. really well. These guys were like pioneers of the LA like like New West scene. Dot with Dom. Word, word, word. And uh, we were talking the other day, and like some shit like just all of a sudden popped into my mind. And we were talking about like black culture and you, your conversation about the church. Kind of bring this all brought this all back to life for me. We were talking about how black culture is the created jazz. Yep. And with jazz, we have jazz theory. Which yep. is the official language of music. Yeah. It's something we don't even think about. If, and your point about DJing in, in church. Yeah. We are the originators of, of, we are the Latin of music. We created the language of music. Like the scientific language of music was created by black people. That's real. And improvisational music, especially. Yeah. You know, when you look at jazz and blues. That's the first time where you had the music being affected by the room and artists that had to adapt to what was going on in the room. Yeah. And I think that's important. You get a different kind of connection. That's something I try to preach to artists that I work with now, like plan out your set, but leave room for improvisation. You know, me and X would always have two to three potential set lists. And then depending on how the openers did their thing and what the crowd was looking like, we would pull out a different set list to respond to it. So, And also for, for the sake of, of, of being 
very specific to our listeners. Mr. Motherfucking Esquire right on, right on. is who we're referring to. So shot the big X me. could be X, you know, DMX. Yeah, our good good homie, mutual friend, Mr. Motherfucking Esquire, man. Grab that new Brainiac EP. Dog, no, baddest in the land. He he killed the show last night. Mm-hmm. Like absolutely destroyed it. Mm-hmm. I was so happy to see him back. Yeah, man. I think um he's in this is probably his most creative space right now. And know? he's like not rusty. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. He's always working on his skill. You know, he's always working on the craft. Just the, the smart artists know when to take a step back and just record and record and record and get better. How, how did you meet X? I met X actually through the internet in its earliest days. We lived like super close to each other. He lived in an apartment across the street from the church that I was talking about to put okay. some perspective in it. Was it the one where we where he was living during the, the time 2011? Yeah, 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 over in the danger room. I was like his childhood home. Yeah. Okay. Right, okay. right over in Crown Heights. Yeah. Um, but at the time, I, do you remember AOL Get File by any chance? I'm showing my age like a motherfucker. Oh, here. Jesus Christ. So Get file, <laughs> Get file was basically you could keep you know files in a folder, and they're always online for people to access. Okay. So if someone was on your buddy list, they could grab files. And I always had my beats in folders. So one day I get this message from a guy randomly. He's like, hey, I saw you had a bunch of beats in your folder, and I took them, and I rapped over a bunch of songs, and here they are. I hope you like them. If not, oh, well, I fucking took them already. And I got super mad. Super pissed off. I'm like, I don't even know this guy. He took my shit. And then I hit play. And I was like, oh, he can have whatever beat he wants going forward. This wow. guy's got it. So we, uh, we decided to link up. We went to a spot called End of the Week. It was like a staple. Oh, wait. That, that was um, uh, at Lower East Side. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah, that yeah. I did that joint. Super staple open mic scene. Is it still uh, there? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. That's one of the longest lasting open mics in New York. Um, but, you know, early Bronson. Like yeah. a lot of the guys came up in that circuit. But uh, he introduced me to that scene. He was like, I'm doing, a, I'm doing a joint there. Meet me. We met up. Fell in love with each other musically. We vibed really, really well. And uh, maybe a few weeks later, I was his DJ. Well, so were you already DJing at this time, or were you producing mainly at this time? I was producing. I was DJing, like, party stuff. I wasn't DJing for artists yet. So, you know, it was, it was definitely a dice roll. He wasn't really sure what to expect. I damn sure didn't know what I was doing. Yeah. But we learned together. And, you know, I think that's the best way to approach live performance, learn together. Well, you know? I mean, also, too, is mainly always to be chemistry-based. Yeah. Like, it's never about, I mean, it is a technical aspect. But to me, it's just the comfort of being with somebody on stage that I feel comfortable with. Yeah. Like, I don't care how technical you, technically trained you are, how good you are. Yeah. It's all about the vibe. And that's important to, to kind of separate from the creative process. Find somebody that, like, I love the nerdy techie stuff. Mm-hmm. X doesn't. So... I was always able to be the person that got that off of his plate. I worked with the engineers. I got everything set up. I did sound checks for him when he didn't want to do them just because I wanted to keep him in a creative space. You know, you focus on rapping. Let me handle the nerdy side of things. Yeah. But you're right. It's about the energy you have together. Like the artist doesn't need to know how you made the sound work. They just need to know that it's working. It's comfortable. You got their back and they can go out there and do what they want to do. hundred percent. Yeah. And so how did you, um, cause you also engineer as well. Mm-hmm. So you DJ and you produce, mm-hmm. which I think is always the common thread. It's like, that's like the musical cousins amongst I agree. Like the science of music. I agree. It, is most people who are good DJs end up being good producers. Right and then, well, you're studying music. Yeah. You know, the more you're mixing records and listening to them intently, the more you know what makes them up and what a good record sounds like. So you then start to learn the tools that make the sound and you want to do it. Yourself. I think it's all about, like, this is the process of being a scientist of sound. Yeah. You know? That's like, a very good way of putting it. You know, it's, it is a science and a lot of the, 
a lot of the things that you learn translate between each other. So there's things that I learned DJing, like EQing and, and frequency response that I use every day when I'm engineering. Yeah. And vice versa. There's things that I learn engineering that dictate what songs I play when I'm DJing. You know, if I'm in a certain room, I'm like, hey, this, this room can't support bass that well. That's something I learned in engineering, but it helps me out when I'm DJing. And, so, and how did you pick up these things? Was it was it self-taught for the most part? Yeah. Um, you know, you're talking like the early AOL Internet days. So it was a lot of going online and finding engineers that were posting on message boards, driving them crazy, hitting them up via email saying, hey, can you teach me this? Can you show me this? Um, I eventually started interning in a couple of studios in New York, but most of it was just literally reading, man. Like I would, I couldn't afford to take these college classes for engineering, so I just found out what textbooks they were using. Were there were there any books you thought were were super enlightening that kind of the mixing engineers handbook is an industry an industry staple that I, I will always stand behind. What is it, what is it called again? The mixing engineers handbook. Okay. Bobby Owinsky, I believe, is the author. Okay. But uh, they have a more recent edition. It no matter what tool you're using, they do a really good job of breaking down the basics and then going from a theoretical like aspect of it. So it translates to different software or hardware. It covers everything. I have maybe three or four copies at my house just because I give it out to friends all the time. Yeah. It's a great resource. And it's a great resource even if you're not an engineer. You know, if you're a vocalist, if you're recording music, it's good to learn that side of it too. So you right. know how to right. work with an engineer. It, it, it's all the same. Yeah. Oh, they're all married to each other. These guys who write these books I always find so fascinating because it's like it's like almost like a, like Bob Green, yeah. like the motivational speakers. But I'm like, well, what do you do? You really have a yeah. job? How do you have this time to do all this? Nah, that's real. Yeah, I, I, I always wonder, like, yeah, so like, like Donald Passman. Yeah. Like, what do you do, Donald? <laughs> but you've been giving the best advice, though. Yeah. Like, yeah, you've been giving the best advice, but I always wonder, like, man, like, what have you actually done? You, you're definitely the Tommy from Martin. That's real. All, all these books... When they mention the author, I'm like, man, y'all should be famous, shouldn't you? For like, that's real. But with the engineering side of it, I feel like a lot of guys lose their ears after a while. So they're like, well, hell, what the hell can else can I do? What do you mean, like, literally, like, literally start to lose sound in your ears? It's one of the biggest hazards in our industry, and I, you know, we people ignore it all the time. But you're around sound all day, you start to lose the high frequencies, and the mids go next, then the lows go next. So it's something you have to be really careful of and cautious of. No, the volume I've mixed on throughout the years has gone down, you know, the more that I mix. Yeah. And I forget who said it, but I remember someone saying, all music sounds good loud. The key is to make the mix sound good quiet. If mm. you can't get energy, it might have been Kanye, but if you can't get energy out of the record while it's quiet, it's not it. Like, I think it was Kanye. The, the volume is, is carrying the, you know, the load, so to speak, and that's not what you're trying to do as a mixer. Because he, he was also, I think... I forget what album it was, and maybe it was the same interview, but he was talking about how he was mixing the album off of a MacBook. Mm -hmm. Like, people... Oh, the, the laptop speakers. Yeah. yeah. Every, I, I reference on a laptop speaker every time I do a mix. Wow. I reference on laptops, earbuds, car, uh, Bluetooth speaker. You got to think, most people are listening on these mediums. They don't have 500 or $1,000 speakers to listen back on. They're listening on smaller speakers. So if it doesn't translate there, you've got a problem. And... Your MacBook has a way different setup than your headphones and anything else, so the only way to really know if your mix translates is to test it on your MacBook. Like, I have old laptops that I use just to test audio on. Wow. Um, it's really important to reference. If you don't know the specifics of a mix, that's one good way to see if you're really doing a good job. Put it on a couple of different speakers and see if they all work. And so, you were you recording X as well during this, during this time? Yeah, yeah. So, I think I started recording X during the Big Fat Kill days 
which is one of his earlier projects, the first project he did with Mishka. Okay. And he always liked working with me because we didn't have to go to a studio. You know, I, from early on, I had a microphone and audio interface and you could record in my house. And he didn't know that that was an option. Um, it's the standard now, but it was something that really freed him up to write a little bit differently. You know, when there's no time constraints and you're just in a room with a friend and that's it, you can kind of bear your soul a little bit more. Yeah. So it's it's cool to see artists kind of moving to that now. I think it's more common to have the studio in your house. Yeah, I mean, we were talking about this a little bit earlier before we went live uh, recording about like the depth of the studio, even like in New York City. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think Electric Lady just closed maybe a year ago. Oh, is that, is that I, gone now? I believe so. If not, it's, it's on its last legs. You know, iconic, legendary studios are falling left and right. Well, it's also, too, even if you are getting the good business, the, the, the price of New York yeah. real estate is super, super high. It's that weird catch-22. If you're getting good business, your landlord probably knows it, so they're going to raise your rent when the time comes. There we go. And then you just can't keep up with it anymore. There we go. And especially in where it's in Soho. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, forget yeah. it. These are neighborhoods that made sense to be in before because they were cheap, but yeah, you not like anymore. leave Electric Lady and go to Uniqlo. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so weird. So That's like, surreal. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a huge benefit, I think, for artists now. Like, what do you think is the benefit for, it's almost like rap 101 or like artist 101. Like, what is the, the first essential you think that a recording artist, because whether you are a rapper or a singer or producer, mm -hmm. the minute you should be a recording artist, you should be able to learn how to record yourself. Absolutely. And what is the importance for that? I mean, you shouldn't have to rely on anybody to get an idea down. You know, you, you never know when inspiration is going to hit you. So I always preach at the very least have a setup where you can record your idea down. And then if you need somebody to clean it up and make it better or re-record it later, at least we have it captured. Yeah. But so many people will either walk into a studio and it's their first time recording that song or writing that song. And there's an art and talent to that, too. It does take you to a different place. But when you're first starting up as an artist, it's way more cost efficient to do it in your home and figure out your sound. I mean, we hell, when I first started rapping, I sounded like DMX and Eminem. Yeah. I figured out my voice in my room. I would have been really upset if I spent hundreds and thousands of dollars recording these songs like DMX and Eminem to never use again. Right. So it's, it's really important, man. And there's YouTube now. That, that didn't exist before. You can learn all this shit online. So why not? Why not take advantage of the education? Because you can do things easier. Yep. Sometimes quality can get like lost in the sauce. Quality gets lost and there's a billion more artists than there ever were. So we have a really crowded field because if you have a MacBook, you have GarageBand on it already, you can start recording songs. I edit my podcast on GarageBand. Most do. And that easy accessibility to high-quality recording software means, hey, I want to be a rapper today. Now I can be a rapper today. It used to take more of a sacrifice. You really yeah. had to want to do it. Like back, back in the crates days? Yeah. Or just even the saving up for studio time days. Like I remember hearing some of these old stories about KRS recording and... They would yell at you if you messed up on a verse because it took more time, so it took more money. Right. You know, now we don't have to worry about that anymore. And what's crazy, to that point, I remember 50 Cent was talking about, he would, he would go to the sessions and have to have the song memorized. Yeah. Which I still recommend, if it's an option. Well, if I'm, like, recording in my room, yeah, I'm allowed a certain amount of freedom yeah. that you can't really get if you're just memorizing the record. That's real. You know what I mean? So if I'm coming in, I got five songs and I got three hours. Yeah. And I'm like, do, 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 do. I'm also not mastering the song. And I think that's, that's a big conflict that I have with technology. It's, it's, it's awesome because, yes, anyone can do it and it makes creating easier. But you're also not getting like a, a masterful, 
Like you're not walking with like a masterful craft sometimes. That's real. That's very real. Again, it's, it's opened up the window to folks at an earlier stage in the game. And as such, you don't get that opportunity to really master the craft. You're absolutely right on that. Because were, were you able to tour? Yeah. The, the biggest touring run that I did, like the longest one, was actually the first Run the Jewels tour. Um, it was so early they weren't even Run the Jewels yet. But I was basically DJing for Esquire at the time, Despot at the time, who also opened up for him. And then Killer Mike would perform, LP would perform his solo stuff. Then they did the Run the Jewels stuff. Um, but prior to that, we toured with Smoke Dizza. I toured with uh, Lacutus and DVS. Wow. Um, I'd done a little bit of work with like the Fool's Gold guys. So I got the chance to play a couple of festivals. Was the Run the Jewels uh, tour your first tour? That was my first like huge, big tour. What was that like? Incredible. Um, you know, for the obvious reasons, they're great, great acts, great sound, but... It really changed the way I look at how you make money off of music and what the music does. Um, you're talking about two guys with legendary catalogs, award-winning on their own, and they were giving away their album. And I didn't, it didn't make sense to me until I saw what happened on the road because of that. The album became promotion, and they then sold tickets at shows, they then got door splits, they sold merch at shows, and that's where they really made their money back. Mm. And that's the model that's standard now, but I think that was right when things were transitioning. And they, to me, they were the first group that really did it at such a successful level that no one questioned it. And <laughs> I mean, you see where they are now. It totally worked. So that's something that I always preach to younger artists. It's like you're in the streaming age, especially your music is going to be kind of like a branding tool. Right. That you can then use to sell other things. That's what we're talking about in the world of engineering. Yeah. Is that. <clears throat> like music right now is so easily digestible. Yeah. And even now, like, you know, if, if you know, you read, you read, what, what's the, what's the book again? Uh, the mixing engineer's handbook. Read that handbook and practice some, and you can get your mixing down and put out something a little bit decent in quality right from your bedroom. Yeah. But we were talking about earlier about, um, having to like diversify. Yeah. Like what you're doing, because like your music is now nothing more than a flyer. Absolutely. You know, it's a promotional tool to get people out to, to invest in you in other ways. Yep. Um, and we did that to ourselves. I mean, streaming did that. Artists give the mixtape era really did that, to be honest with you. We kind of devalued selling our product. And, you know, no matter how you feel about that, that is what it is right now. So it's, oh, for up, sure. to, so it's up to you as an artist to then adapt. But did, but did we devalue? Did we devalue or did technology devalue it for us? I think that's a more accurate statement. Yeah. I think technology allowed the landscape for it to become devalued right. between streaming, the, the Napster era, and again, the oversaturation that's a result of technology. I think you're 100% right. But fuck the music industry <laughs> pre internet. Yeah. Because they were gouging their fans like a motherfucker. That's I have no sympathy. That's a fact. The minute that like, I want to feel like, oh, back in the days of going to on Tuesdays to Best Buy and picking up the latest album. For at, $17.99 at certain times. Dude, I bought the, the, the pinnacle of fuck you music industry. <laughs> and my lack of loyalty also, too, it, it created a lack of loyalty with the consumer. That's something people that the music industry kind of forgot. They got too big-headed. Yeah. And in business, you have to create that loyalty and do right by your customer. Or the house I, falls apart. Yes. I bought John Mayer Heavier Things. Word. Not mad at all. Great album. Yeah. Great album. Ten songs. $21. $2 plus tax a song. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, 
about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. <laughs> That's real, dude. And I remember getting this joint being like, yo, this is robbery. Yeah. But think about like that era of music, the super budget videos that were being done and the money that had to be spent for marketing. It was a broken, overinflated industry. Yes. And it had to collapse. For sure. But, you know, just like what you said with gentrification and people looking back to the past, you can spend all your time looking back at the past and not adapt. Or you can say, hey, this is what it is. How do I fit in this new landscape? Exactly. And I think that's what's going to fix our saturation problem. A lot of folks just aren't adapting to the new landscape. So what do you, what do you think is, is good advice for an artist to adapt? Tour. Uh, release records much more slowly than we ever did. Okay, but okay, but touring, you make it sound like go buy a pack of bubble gum. Yeah, like, no. <laughs> like, like, and I actually, I shouldn't even say tour, just perform. You okay. know, you can perform locally as much as you can, but the key is get used to performing and performing well because that's where you'll make most of your money. Okay. Um, but also start thinking about branding and licensing your music because mm. that's the other real key in being sustainable out here. You know, like I said before, the music is a promo tool and brands know that. So if you understand that world, you can link up with a good brand that'll either give you bread in pocket or a little bit more visibility than you'd be able to give yourself. Right. Um, but I think it's, it's really about, because everyone's so ADD'd out, slowing down your release process and trying to work each record with a brand in mind um, and with live performance in mind. Those mm. are the two things that I preach first. The, the, with, with a brand in mind, you mean partnering with a brand in Abs- mind? Absolutely. Because that, that's what uh, X that's did. That's what X did successfully right. with Mishka. And to this day, you know, it's funny, I'll wear a Mishka clothing, and that's the thing that someone identifies first. But you're wearing it right now. I'm wearing Mishka right now. Hat, And then then they go, oh, wait a minute, you're that guy that worked with the artist, because I do a lot of production and DJing for the Mishka artist. Yeah. So it it becomes a flag that you get to wave, if that makes sense. And also, a brand is always going to push your content, even when you're not doing it. It's that extra set of folks sending your music out or sending your images out to the world. What is the first step for branding, for putting yourself in the right position to get picked up by um, a, a brand? I think you have to have a clear identity of yourself and your self-worth and what you, how you see yourself. I think self-image is something that creatives kind of avoid because we don't want to feel narcissistic. Mm-hmm. But you really have to have a clear idea of what you like, what you don't like, what works for your brand, what you don't want to be associated with, because that then impacts everything else involved in the package. So your website design, your, the songs that you write, the types of clothing that you're going to put out if you're going to sell things, it's all a direct result of your original brand. So I'm, I'm nerdy rapper X, for example, mm-hmm. you know, a straight edge rapper from a straight edge town and super lyrical, maybe Christian influenced. It's not going to make sense for me to be in a 40 ounce commercial. It's not going to make sense for me to have a website that has graffiti all over the place and has a really dark image. These are things that cause 
folks to get confused when you're working with branding. You got to make it really clear. I know it sounds kind of sad. It feels like you have to limit yourself and put yourself in a box. But you definitely but have to you put yourself in a box. kind of have to put yourself in a box. Look, in order to be successful in life, you have to put yourself in a box. Yep. And you have to realize that you can change that down the line. But, but who, who's Denzel Washington? What do you mean? Who, what's his brand? Esteemed, uh, gentlemanly, uh, scholarly. You would trust him around your mom and you shouldn't. You know, there's a very distinct package that you have here. Yes. I mean, granted, his acting skills allow him to go out of that world. But not too much, though. But not too much. And, and the other side of it is when he does go out of his, his package, when he goes out of that world, people look at him as even more of an impressive actor. Exactly. Because now he's doing some, oh, he's not supposed to be able right. to do that. So it, it also gives you that chance to blow people's minds up and, and cross over at a certain point. Because you know who always has a job? Jennifer Aniston. That's a fact. For good reason. She's still fine. I mean, still fine. <laughs> Number one. Let's, let's highlight that. And super talented. I shouldn't, I shouldn't just I limit mean, it to that. Super. Yes. Talent, more talented than I in her field. I'll leave it at that. Hey, she does what she does really well. Yeah. Like, she's like the girl next door. Yeah. At like 45. Yeah. Yeah. And That's she's real. Been, she's been the girl next door since Friends. That's the strength of a brand. Like, it, we're so used to seeing that as her image, we ignore her age. Yeah. You know, that says a lot. Look at 2 chains. 2 chains is like his images trapped the fuck out. Like I'm a former D-boy. He's having his 40th birthday. Yeah. That doesn't make sense, but his brand is solid. They always have him in the same light, you know? That's I mean, super important. Yeah, I, I think a lot of times, uh, you, you definitely touched on it already. It just, a lot of people feel uncomfortable with putting a box on yourself. But mm-hmm. the minute that you do, like people know where to go. I, I look at songs or in people like Hallmark cards mm-hmm. and people should be able to pull you out. Like, like, like for, for instance, um, John Mayer. Yeah. John Mayer has the instant, well, now we're on the John Mayer kick. It was like, hilarious. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. I'm like a stand right now. Nah, he's super talented, bro. Super talented. I'm a big fan. But, but Mayer's whole sound is yeah. a Hallmark card. Yeah. It's like, Mm, maybe one album has like a good morning feel, but the rest of them have like a late night feel. Yeah. Like I just had my heart broken. Let me like pour like a glass of red wine and yeah. like that, that Even whole thing. what ambience. he does with his face when he's performing. Like yep. he's aware of what he's doing. He's They're, totally they aware. They market that for a reason. Like, for sure. They zoom in on that for <laughs> a reason. You know, it's, the, it's the something. face. Yeah. It's yeah. something to refer to him as, you know, you know, the guy that does the things with his face. Oh yeah. Now I remember. Yeah. It's, it's one of the oldest marketing tips in the book. You know what I mean? Give someone something else to attach to associated with the product, and they will always remember that product. By the way, I have, I have this beer here that I had had before you came in, and now I feel like a total dick. I'm like drinking this beer. Oh, God. I'm drinking this beer. I didn't offer him one. You're good, bro. Straight dick mode. <laughs> You're the guest. You're the guest. I'm drinking the beer. Like shit, I'm so sorry, bro. I got this good H2O life. I'm alright. Yeah, just just had just had to address it. I DJed last night. I've had enough alcohol in the past 24 hours. Or where, where, where are you DJing? Uh, over at Doer Dive. Shout to Doer Dive, formerly Doer Dine. Yes, because you're working, man. Dude, you should be missing like me. crazy, dude. Miss these events. If I go- if I could tell you like the schedule. Yeah. Like here we go. Last night I worked from six to twelve. Yeah. At a podcast interview before that, six to twelve. Got back home at one thirty. Yeah. Had to edit. The episode for today's studio session that was like three or four hours. So I got I was in bed by four thirty, up by nine, went on a five mile run, had a meeting at one, left there was the studio by three, from three to five was in the studio editing the episode, got here for six, <laughs> then I leave here, wrap this interview up, I got to get to Brooklyn to work again 
Jesus. till four. Can I just say to anyone in the creative field, this is why it's important to be punctual. You have no idea what kind of schedule you're walking into. So Duh. when someone says get somewhere at 8 to 8.30, that may be the only half hour they have. When you get into a market like New York or L.A. Yeah. And you realize like what, because you're from here. Yeah. And so you kind of have a home field advantage of recognizing time. Yeah. I did not understand the concept of calendar and time and punctuality. Yeah. Professionalism. Yeah. You know, more until, until I got into this arena. It makes sense. Were there any mistakes along the way of touring or what things did you learn on the tour that you would advise? Like, we, we kind of got off topic and I wanted to bring that up. Yeah. was like, what things on tour did you learn? So What were your biggest fuck-ups? So I'll use the, the tour with Elle and Despot and all of them as the perfect example because I think everyone, we had varying shades of how well people did their merch. Um, I love you, X, and I love you, Mishka, but our shirt was not the best shirt for that run. It was like a collage cartoon image of X with a bunch of girls with like bikini tops and 40s and like diving into a pool full of money kind of thing. And as much as that was on brand for Huzza, I didn't think that that was on brand for X's entire catalog. Mm. So it did two things. It made a disconnect for the real fans that knew his catalog and knew that that wasn't a representation of him. And it also was a shirt that most people can't wear. You know, you can't walk around in your mom's house with a bunch of cartoon boobies out. So you have to keep that in mind. Um, the flip side, Despot, I thought, did an amazing job with his merch. He had a shirt that was kind of like an obscure reference, like a New York reference. And his, his name was actually on really small lettering at the bottom of the shirt. So even if you weren't a fan of his music, it was just a cool fucking shirt. And mm. I saw people qualify the purchase because the shirt just looked cool on top of it being a Despot shirt. I saw people buy that shirt not realizing it was his. So I think... As artists, our tendency is to like pit our name in big letters over something, but it's more about having a really cool looking product and then having your name attached to it somewhere small so it can just be worn. And also, too, I think for, for X's case, like Hazal was such a big record. Yeah. Like it was a like staple, big, 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 big record. Like, yeah. And almost too, like kind of the early on pitchfork, pigeon and planes viral. Yeah. It was one of the first like big blog rap super hits. It went blog platinum. Yeah, <laughs> I like that blog platinum. Yeah, went blog super platinum. Like blog super platinum. Yeah, the sto- that story of meeting X in 2011 was one of the most remarkable things I've ever seen. Word from going to a show with ten. So it shows the power of the internet. Yeah, and the power of good branding and good marketing and because um, good business strategy. Yeah, I remember going to see a show with ten people. Yeah. To going to see a show with a hundred people. Yep. To then being like, yo, I like I'm having to like call Gouch, like, yo, could you even get me in this joint? Right. Like, like that quickly. Yeah. In, in the course of a month and a half, two months. And that's I mean, that's getting a co-sign from a couple of other big brands. Like you said, the early Pigeons and Planes, Fader was really, really big on it back in the day. And Mishka, he had an online presence that was working for him. You know, but not to not to to uh, to sway off a of merch, one more thing that I saw that I think is important to communicate. Um, Ellen Mike showed me the value of different pricing tiers for your merch. Mm. So we always think, okay, I'm going to have t-shirts and they're going to be 20 to $30 and that's that. They had t-shirts, they had stickers, they had grinders that were a bit cheaper, they had keychains that were a bit cheaper, they had package deals so they could upsell and they had a guy in charge of their merch. There was a guy on the road, he had a bunk on the bus, his name was Merch Jesus. 
And all he did was upsell the people. Like, he was, he was doing sales. Wow. And, I mean, it sustained the tour. We had some emergencies where we needed cash, and that cash helped us continue the tour on. So think about your fans that can only spend 2 or $3 to support you and give them an opportunity to do that, too. It's not always about the home run, you know? Yeah, I think, too, also, a lot of times as artists, we see ourselves as artists. Mm-hmm. With the Internet, it's very important that we see ourselves as business people. Absolutely. You're like, a business. Like, look. If you're reading engineering books, you should probably read a business book as well. Yep. Because honestly, one, you're going to be doing a lot more stuff yeah. than you ever imagined. Yeah. There's a certain things when you're starting a business that you don't, because music is nothing more than a startup. Yeah. It's the same thing. That's real. It's an independent business that you're launching, looking for sales. Exactly. Looking for people to support. And we over glamorize it because it may come with like some women and drinking and smoking. But so do other businesses. <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah, you know right, true. I mean? true, true, true. But you know what? They're not marketing that. Right. Like the rapper it's, gets to market. It's a part of the lifestyle in our culture. Right. But half of the time, that's not even the real either. You know what I mean? It's just, it can be a branding tool, but you still should look at yourself as a business first. Otherwise, nobody else is going to. And that's, also, you shouldn't really be getting that fucked up. You shouldn't. You absolutely shouldn't. You like, know? honestly, your, your job is almost like, a, your job is to get everybody else fucked up. Right. And that was something, I mean, those, those were some of the early growing pains with pretty much every rapper that I've DJed for, you know, getting too fucked up before the show and then realizing I probably could have been a bit more sober for this. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know? Yeah, because it, it's just, we only show, I think there was one story my best friend Josh was telling me about, about Nas and uh, he was about, someone went backstage to, to see Nas and this, this stereotypical element of rap is like, 20 dudes in a room, mm-hmm. everyone hot, mm-hmm. some chicks back there. Nas was sitting there eating like a fruit basket. You know what I mean? So I am in Houston with Killer Mike. And you would think he's going to have shorties all over the place. It's going to be a party. I go to his dressing room. He's sipping cranberry juice and reading the newspaper maybe a good 45 minutes before a show. And that's not to say that's every night, but... Comparable actions happen most nights. He's not the dude walling out before shows. And those are the guys that are successful, the guys and girls that are successful in this industry. Right. They treat it seriously. You can party after, but be attentive and, and good to go for the performance. But you, hey, I mean, you should definitely treat... Uh, have you read Charlemagne's book? Yeah. Great yeah, man. Book. I, was, I, I was nervous, and I was so pleasantly surprised in that book. Same. I had no idea. How, I wanted to support it no matter what, but I wasn't really sure how much I would pull from it. Fucking incredible read. Like, crushed that book in I like kinda, four days. I need to read it again, actually. Yeah. <laughs> incredible read. Yo, I think it's very important, especially for people in our community. Yeah. Like, especially for. Yeah. Because he touches on so many things of like, let's go back to the venue thing. Yeah. We talked about the venue. And I think Charlemagne really brought up a lot of points about there are certain things in our culture that we understand, right? Sure. I understand if there's 20 dudes, 30 dudes on the stage. Sure. And why that shit's fucking fly as fuck. Sure. But the engineer who just did, like, the 50-year-old rock band the night before... What the fuck? Doesn't... <laughs> what the hell is it? These kids are stepping on my cords. Yes. They're fucking up the speakers. These kids. I never want them back again. Yes. And that's the problem. That, and I don't know. I think the... The lack of professionalism that we sometimes see when we're, or sometimes see when we're working with these venues, stems from us not considering ourselves as as professional of a genre of music. You know, I think that's a self esteem thing that hip hop kind of needs to get over. We're just as valid and we're just as professional as pop, yes. as country, as soul. 
but you have to then come with the same level of professionalism to get that back from the venue. Yes. You know, it's a two-way street. But like you said, we just we understand in hip-hop that, oh, it's okay if we don't treat it with that level of professionalism. And I'm not cool with that. No, no. I mean, even, like, with... It's so refreshing. I mean, I think hip-hop has definitely changed now. But it's yeah. even refreshing when we do, like, this podcast. Yeah. And you see me briefings. And I'm like, really? fuck, yes. What the... Yes! Because that's where we need to get the culture. You yes. Know? And, and that's what allows the original architects of the culture to be in the boardrooms and to, to run the labels from the inside. It's taking that extra step of being punctual, being professional. Every DJ gig that I got was because of how professional I was. You know what I mean? Folks would say, Sense is going to take care of it. Yeah. You know, he's going to get there before sound checked. Shit's going to be sorted out. His rapper can be as crazy as they want to be because he's going to be the professional one. So if you, if you don't want to do it, if you want to be wild, and sometimes that does work for people's brand, they want to be off the kilter, then it the very least, have someone on your team that is about being professional. For sure. You know? For sure. For sure. Where, where did you learn that from? Um, experience, really. But I think a lot of it is just innate. You know, you have a, a quality of work that you want to send out every time. Um, but I also think engineering. You know, if, if you were late for a session or if you just weren't doing what you should do in a session, the artist is going to call you out on it because they're on a the clock. Or your lead engineer is going to call you out on it. And you're not going to work anymore. So I think it's just being in fields where that wasn't okay. Maybe translated over to hip hop. Oh, so what do you do? Uh, so you're not in New York anymore. Mm-mm. So you are where now? Northern California. I'm in a little, little tiny town called Sebastopol. There's like 8,000 people. Wow. About 7,000 of them are hippies. 500 draw weed. <laughs> what, like, what, what inspired the move, the move out of New York? Because you're, you're a New York guy. Yeah. I mean, that, a lot of it was that. I, um, I tackled a lot of the New York things, but didn't necessarily feel like I'm really a New York guy. Like, mm. I'm much more of a laid-back, reserved people person. Mm-hmm. So for a while, like, the art and the culture kept me in New York, but so much of that is changing, it just it wasn't worth it for me anymore. So I was ready to kind of go somewhere more calm and just put the focus on production again. Was that a tough adjustment to, to yeah. not be living in Listen, this? Listen, the first time you're hungry at, like, 10.30 and everything's closed... And you can't yeah, go to a bodega and get a bacon, egg, and cheese at any hour. Like, it's rough. You question it. But I also know that I would not have, you know, 100 beats a month if I was still living in New York. My productivity has been crazy out there. Right. So it, there's pros and cons like anything in life. I've been really happy with it so far. And you doing the engineering? A little bit more. Okay. Um, but it's mainly been the production side of things. Starting to work with artists again, so it's been really fun. That's exciting, man. Yeah, that, the new Esquire project, I'm, I'm very excited about. So you're, you're part of the new project? Yeah. I mean, oh, at dude, least one, hopefully two or three, but at least one confirmed record on it. That's dope. And a little bit of executive ear on it, too. I'm also, uh, I just started a group with the producer, Amaze88. He does a lot of work with, like, Das Racist, uh, called 88 Cents. We're going to do the J-Lib kind of thing. We both produce, both rap on it. Nice. So, the real big push to move out of New York was to get back in my creative things again. Yeah, I, I definitely, I think New York is great for, uh, for lots of handshakes. Sure. Sure. Lots of very important handshakes. Yeah. But I think it's really important. That's another thing I think I struggled with early on in the move here that I was not prepared for. Yeah. I wish it was like a maybe maybe we should get on this since we write a book. Like <laughs> like on on being an artist in New York. Like that's real. Because there's certain things that, I would, that no one can really prepare you for. Yeah. But there's some things that you could be prepared for. That yeah. that like the book just isn't written yet. New York teaches you about prioritizing shit. Big time. time management. I think those are the two. If you're going to read business-related books as an artist, learn time management and learn prioritizing. You know, a lot of there's a lot of resources for that, but that's always going to hold weight out here. That's where people get lost. 
There's so much stuff to do. There's so many options. You don't know where you should put all of your energy in first, and then right. you, you just you run yourself too thin. You know, it happens Good. all the time. By the time you factor in your day, yeah, of waking up, <clears throat> you have to have multiple jobs. It's expensive to live. Yep. So you have to have multiple jobs to be able to function and just live life and pay your rent on time. Yep. And your and your bills. Yep. So by the time you put in, I would say about maybe forty hours, fifty hours at a job. Then you're like, let's be creative. Right. And then you're like, well, shit. I'm tired. I'm fucking tired. Just as a human. Yeah. And not, and not including just the lifestyle itself. Like you're not seeing trees. You're not getting clean air. You're not getting the essential things that humans need. Yeah. Like, these things are kind of gone. Yeah. You're just seeing concrete and gray clouds and shitty weather. It's a skewed perspective. And, like, I, I've been here for the first huge portion of my life. I'm only recently out of New York, so I've only just now seen the other side of it. And coming back to it, I'm like, how the fuck did I, like, how did I even keep a clear head? There's, there's no nature. There's noise all the time. There's attitudes that you have to adjust to. And if you're creative, you're probably more sensitive than other people. So that's going to be a big hit, too. You know, it, it, it literally kind of takes a toll on how you feel on a day-to-day living out here. Yeah. So you got to be prepared for that, you know? And that's why I think a lot of folks will go to, to smoking too much and drinking too much and, and trying to figure things out that way. But... Learn a healthy way of dealing with that. That's that's a big piece of advice I'd have for people moving to New York for their art. Yeah, go learn go, to meditate. Yeah, learn to get away from it if you can. But it'll it'll kick your ass if you let it. And before we go, tell us about your podcast. Ah, so the Lab Science Podcast for all those creative music producers, engineers, and DJs. Hit labsciencepodcast.com. We basically talk all things tech, all things creative, all things business minded and career minded for folks like that. So how long have you been doing the podcast? About a year now. Okay. About a year now. We put out one to two episodes a month. They're long running, hour to two hours long, audio samples, a couple of topics each week. Um, and again, labsciencepodcast.com is the website and all the social medias. Boom. And what's your Instagram? Uh, Instagram, S-E-N-T-Z underscore. And everything else is just S-E-N-T-Z. Whoever the fuck has S-E-N-T-Z on Instagram, we got to fight. Dude. So. It's always some dweeb. It's. They're not even using it. <laughs> I've done the research. It's just sitting there. Have you reached out to them? I have. They ain't answering. I don't even really? feel active anymore. I need to talk to Instagram and see if there's any legal things I can do about it. But I mean, yeah. is it zero, zero, zero? Like, like nothing's on there? Nothing. Oh, dog. They just think it. Someone did me dirty. It's an X, man, coming for you. <laughs> don't say that. You, That's you, what I'm you, worried you about. You pissed off an X. You know what's going to happen? Someone, I'm, I'm going to get more successful, and then they're going to be like, okay, you can have this for a million dollars. They're yeah, waiting. Yeah. Dude, people actually do that. It's yeah. actually a career. It's a career. Yeah. Domain gougers do it too. Man. That's a whole other topic they're, though. They're, they're like the internet tow truck drivers. That's, they're like the repo man. The repo man. <laughs> they're like the future repo man. Like, dude, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> Your whole existence is around shitting on other people. Word. Assholes. Yep. Well. That's the game. Fuck them. Sense you the man, brother. Likewise, brother. Love Always you, man. a pleasure. Likewise, man. Love you. Best of luck with this too, man. You're doing great things. Thank you so much to the Silent Giants behind this episode of the Silent Giants podcast. This episode has been mixed by Mark Bird of NBM Studios, located in Astoria, Queens, NYC's number one recording studio for music, podcasting, and other audio recordings. Be sure to follow them on Instagram at NBM Studios NYC. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge, signing off till next time. Have you ever Googled your own name? 
Prepare for a shock because your personal info, including addresses and phone numbers, is all out there. It's all harvested by data brokers and sold legally. Aura is a personal digital security service that scans the internet for your sensitive information and provides a full suite of privacy-enhancing tools. For a limited time, Aura is offering listeners a 14-day free trial at aura.com safety. That's A-U-R-A dot safety to learn more and activate the 14-day trial period.